and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Good morning, everyone. It's one of those days uh, in Colorado where it's good to have a long beard. I'm just saying. So, uh, ladies, we're deeply appreciative that you don't have those, so... Uh, what a wonderful Sunday morning, though, to gather with the saints as we, the church, uh, as we get together and get our Bibles out to greet each other, to worship. I mean, you guys can sing. This is a singing church to give our offering and our time of fellowship. Um, but it's this right here. It's this right here. The study of the Bible is the central focus of what we do here. I'm not saying that I'm somehow going to change your life because when you hear me preach that I'm so awesome, and no, 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 that's not it at all. But the Word of God read and preached, expounded upon, the Holy Spirit takes that and that Word of God and moves it into your head and into your heart. I mean the core of you. If you don't remember me, I'm, I'm good with that. But at, may the Word of God penetrate your heart and move us all, really, to be more like Jesus. Amen? That's what we're here for. Well, you ready for some preaching? All right, here we go. Let's remember the setting. Get this picture into your head. Uh, Jesus is on the eastern shore of the lake of Tiberias, or what is often called the Sea of Galilee. And he and his disciples had come from the western side of the lake in a boat for a chance to get away uh, in kind of a a rural setting, a desolate place. The western side of the lake is... It is their home base in a town called Capernaum. Uh, they have been on a year-long kind of tour going from village to village, preaching, doing miracles. And when they are done with that tour of all these places, they come by boat to this place on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, well, in hopes of getting a little R&R. But it was not to be. Um, here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee, just so you know, the side that they're on, where the feeding, this is the area they believe the feeding was at. You can see it goes from the surface right up, right up into the mountains, right from the edge of the shore. But word had gotten out that Jesus was close by, and as people are already on the move going to Jerusalem for Passover, they come and follow him. Uh, The crowd begins to gather around him. We're told about 5,000 men. And when you add women and children in that number, we get to about twenty to 25,000. And we've studied in detail the fourth of seven miracles, or what the Apostle John calls signs. Jesus feeds this giant crowd till they are stuffed. And what's so amazing that he feeds this giant crowd with just a little boy's sack lunch of five loaves of bread, two little fish. And it's as the size, as far as the size goes, this miracle, I believe, is bigger than any of the other miracles in that it affects the number of people. Like the people see Jesus' power and they taste the food and seeing this miracle makes the people think, this guy's got real power. They think this must be the promised one of God. We should make him our king. We should do it right now. 
But Jesus, realizing what they are about to do, simply slips right through them. And we know from the Gospel of Mark that Jesus goes up those mountains to pray. He's up high looking down. He's alone, the Bible's clear about. We also know from the Gospel of Mark that Jesus had had told his disciples to go on in the boat that they'd come in, go back to their home base. Now let's turn to John 6 as we continue in our series through the Gospel of John. And we're titling this, So That You May Believe. That's the whole series. Well, if you would, please stand. Just a way of showing reverence to the Word of God being read aloud. I'll read and you listen carefully. Starting in verse 15 of John 6. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountains by to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Where the other three Gospels describe many, many of the other miracles that Jesus does, the Apostle John only concentrates on these few, these seven, or what we call signs. And these signs he chooses are designed to reveal who Jesus is as the Son of God. We've seen that through all these miracles. So if the feeding of the 5,000 is sign number four, This sign is sign number five, isn't it? Jesus walking on the water. Now, before we dive into the text and go verse by verse, there's a couple of things that we need to get set in our head before we go. First, realize that this miracle that uh, that we're talking about is where Peter steps out of the boat and takes a few steps towards Jesus on the water. Now, we'll study that in depth at another time. The Apostle John doesn't cover that here, not because it's not important, but he is showing something that is part of the larger story of what the entire chapter is pointing to. In these next few weeks, we'll really be unpacking that. Second thing is you'll remember there's another miracle I'm going to refer to that Mark describes for us that's very similar to this one. It takes place before this miracle, maybe more than a year before this miracle. It's when the disciples are in the boat, you remember, and they're hit by a big storm with wind and waves, and Jesus is asleep in the boat, and they wake him up, and he calms the storm. In that miracle, Jesus had been in the boat asleep. He was there with them. They wake him up. He calms the wind and waves. Instantly, they're calm. And in that miracle, they had first been afraid of the wind and the waves. But then when Jesus does that, they're like going, we're afraid of him now. They're really freaked out. But this one, this miracle that we're looking at is different, isn't it? Check out verse 15 there in your Bible or look up here. 
perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus goes up the mountain alone to pray. He leaves this big crowd there. He simply slips away and they can't find him. Jesus has told his disciples to get back in the boat, to go back to the home base. So there in verse 16, look at this. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They can be taught. <laughs> they follow what he says to do. Now, now, something you need to know is that the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. The surface is. And because of the high mountains on that one side, now we call those the Golan Heights, uh, that eastern shore where they're leaving from, and the western shore, the lower shore on the other side, what happens is the cool, moist air uh, comes over and down the slopes to the sea and it regularly collides with the warm, moist air of the lake and it creates intense windstorms that are instant. It's famous for it right now. And the mountains work like a, a funnel for this. So look at this in verse 17. They got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum and it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. When they get to the boat, as darkness falls, we're not told of any wind. Otherwise, they would wait a storm out. So some of these guys had spent their lives on this particular body of water. They had literally been raised on this, this body of water. So they knew the signs. And when there was high wind and a storm, you stayed on the shore. You stayed in port. Or in other words, they knew not to start out in a boat during a storm. So look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The storm is upon them. Now the sea is, is not massive. Uh, it's only about seven miles across. But the storms, we know, churn up high waves quickly. They can capsize boats very quickly. You got to face the, the, uh, with the, uh, be, with the waves there or against the wind. And it turns into this violent squall. Now notice we're not told of any rain in the storm. And that's not unusual. But waves are going against them because the wind is coming right at their face. They're trying to get their boat right even with the waves. The wind, the wind is driving them backward as they strain to row forward. They can't use the sail on the boat. We know that because in verse 19... The first part says when they had rowed about three or four miles. They're rowing. Row, row. Now straining against the storm then. Look in the second half of that verse. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Now this is where we read in both Matthew and Mark about Peter asking Jesus if he can come out to uh, Jesus, and we'll save that for another time. That's a great time of preaching. But don't you hope we get to see a video of that? Don't you like when you get there in heaven, like Jesus has got some old dusty VHS tapes he can pop in and say, Here, here's one. And you go, I want to see it again. So these are fishermen, though, many of them. And fishermen in rough seas 
Well, we've got family in there. Let's just say sailors in rough seas, they use a bit of colorful language. But when they see the man walking in the storm, it really gets colorful, colorful, if you will. I'm sure of that. They're terrified. I'm sure that we would be terrified as well. Although we're told it's Jesus coming near their boat, they don't know that, so they're terrified, it says. It's not until Jesus calls out to them in verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now this is powerful because look, the Greek behind this this expression is ego imi, the literal meaning is the core part of the I am statement. You'll hear this throughout John. In coming chapters, John uses this to say when Jesus refers to himself as I am. He'll do that seven times as I am statements, like I am the bread of life. But right here, he's just saying I am. Yahweh, the self-revealed covenant name for God that, that God tells Moses. This is my name. Now, if this doesn't get you, I don't know what will. They're in the storm of their life, rowing like mad. They see a dude walking on the water towards them, and maybe they yell out in fear. And Jesus says, guys, relax, it's me, Yahweh. Now watch, the storm is not over, but they have Jesus in sight. Whoo, that's a powerful thing. Not to jump ahead, but if you're in the storm... If you have Jesus in sight, it's okay. They welcome him. The wind is still whipping up. The waves are still, boom, pounding against the the boat. And John 6, 21 says, then they were glad to take him into the boat. Now, I love that word glad there. They were glad, but what an understatement. Yes, let's get Jesus in our boat, but why are they so glad? Because remember, Jesus had calmed the sea before instantly. That it scared them so bad in the other miracle. The wind and the waves were stilled just before, just by three little words, peace be still. They knew that. They had faith in Jesus. They would, that he would calm the storm again. That their faith had been built on walking with Jesus. They had seen him now do countless miracles I mean, just hours before this, they had seen him feed this massive crowd. Now, remember that they had 12 basketfuls of leftovers, and those were probably right at their feet in the boat. They're literally standing over the evidence of the last miracle that he just did. So they welcome him into the boat, and they were glad. He steps in, verse 21b. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now we're not told anything more about their reaction to moving from the middle of the Sea of Galilee to their home destination. But boom, they were right there. I'm assuming there were some wide eyes and mouths open like, how did that just happen? John doesn't expound on it at all here. He just says, by the way, we were in the middle of the lake and instantly we're at the shore. Notice, notice, he doesn't calm the waves first. He doesn't stop the wind. 
Now this whole story just begs the question, or at least it does to me, why, Jesus? Why make these guys go through the storm? I mean, they have to be extremely tired. They rode for hours in fear of their lives. They're soaking wet, probably from waves breaking over the top of their boat. Meanwhile, Jesus has been up on the mountain praying. Like you gotta ask, why Jesus would you make someone you love go through a storm that you clearly have the ability to stop? I want you to see some major stuff here. And let me say, there are no accidents why you're here today. Hang with me. Let me give you a picture. When a silversmith or a goldsmith is working his craft, he takes gold and he puts it into a crucible and he puts fire under the crucible, heats it. The flame, the heat, heats up the precious metal until it melts. And when it begins to get to the melting point, the impurities are bubbling up like a stew and impurities rise to the top. Those impurities are called dross. As the dross comes to the top, the artisan carefully scrapes off the impure dross, not any of the gold, just the dross, and he throws it away. But the heating is not done. The the smith carefully reheats the metal over and over. The impurities continue to rise to the top of this precious metal. He scrapes it off again. And again, it happens. Again, it happens. The artisan continues in the flame. You go, how do you know you're done, Mr. Artisan, with heating the gold? It's when he can see himself clearly in the precious metal without any impurities obstructing his reflection. You with me? The author of Hebrews answers the question of why Jesus had these guys go through the storm while he, he's praying up on the mountainside, talking to believers in Christ Jesus. Let's look at the uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse four through six. The author says this, in your struggles against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Underline that. And he chastises every son whom he receives. Now I want you to see that it's right there. We see the entire principle of this story John describes for us. The feeding of the giant crowd, that was easy smeezy. Everyone who saw Jesus said, yes, that took power. I think he may be the prophet as they chowed down on this delicious meal. But this miracle is different, isn't it? This sign was just to the inner group of his followers. Like the goldsmith refining the gold, he makes something beautiful out of it. Jesus is refining these guys. Now, let's look at the story again, but let's look at it from a different perspective, shall we? From Mark 6.45, we know that Jesus tells his disciples, go get in the boat as darkness is falling. 
We know that. Folks, we're about to get into some deep stuff. So hang with me because we're about to see some of the meaning behind why the Christian life is so difficult. So hard. You ready? Write this down. Jesus had sent those he loved across the lake at night knowing full well that what was about to happen. Jesus had sent those he loved across the lake at night knowing full well what was about to happen. Now as you come to this realization... It's going to make you think one of two things about Jesus. One, you could get really angry at Jesus. Like, how in the world could you send your people, those who follow you, those who love you, into harm's way, especially when you know the storm is going to come and they don't know? Or two, you can rest in the sovereignty that the storm is part of God's plan, his providence For his glory and our good. The gospel of Mark tells us that a strong wind was in their face. Blowing against them. They rode hard till about 3 a.m. or closer to dawn. Now don't you wonder what they must have been thinking as they rode. I mean they've been rowing six or seven hours. Dangerous hours the whole time. Meanwhile Jesus is praying on the mountain. And it doesn't say, but I've got to assume that the disciples must have been thinking, Jesus, where are you? You loved all these people by feeding them. Why could you not come save us? Why are you making us go through that? Why aren't you asleep on the cushion in the back like before? Now, Jesus, we've seen your power. We believe you're the son of God. We've given our lives. We're the inside guys. Where are you, Jesus? Six hours rowing, seven hours rowing. And remember, they had him in the boat last time in the storm. All they had to do in that case, in that former miracle, was wake him and he calmed the storm. Where are you, Jesus? Why did you leave me in the storm? Now, we're not told of their thoughts other than that they're frightened. What we are told is that they kept rowing. And that's important. You see, the first storm, they saw Jesus command the waves and the wind, peace, be still. This time, Jesus is letting the wind and the waves batter them for hours. The first storm had built their faith. That's the important thing to get. How do we know that? Because they kept rowing in the storm. Jesus had told them, head home. Go that way. Go back to Capernaum. So no matter what they faced, they were going to try to make it home as best as they could, as he had instructed. So they pulled. So Jesus sends them through the storm. He sends them into the storm. He's refining them like the goldsmith. Now, what had they learned? Three quick things. Write this down. Number one, Jesus is watching them go through the storm. Jesus is watching them go through the storm. Now, you can also write in there, Jesus is watching you go through the storm right now. 
The disciples had learned that although they had not been aware of it, Jesus had been watching them go through the storm as he prayed for them on the mountains. We know that from the other two Gospels, that he watches them go through the storm. The Gospel of Mark says in Mark 6, 48, And he, Jesus, saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Oh, that speaks volumes right there. Not only was he watching, Jesus knew that it was painful for them. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. They're going, Jesus, why are you having us go through the storm? Jesus must have told them later on, I saw you the entire time. Now, let me ask you, believer, have the storms you've gone through, maybe you're going through right now, that Jesus has his eye on you? Yeah. That's the challenge of being a pastor of a small church. I know many of you, most of you. I know the storms that you've gone through, you're going through. What this story exposes, the false doctrine of the prosperity gospel, by the way, that says, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Why are they always Southern? That just hurts my feelings. Look, Jesus doesn't make things easy for the ones he loves. He refines us through the storms. Muscles that are not used get flabby. They get soft. They grow weak. Jesus won't let that happen to us. Why? Because he loves us. He wants us to grow up into all that he has designed for us to be. And besides, there's work to be done. But here's what I know. His eye is on us as we go through the hard times. So what do we do? Like like the disciples. Write this down. We keep rowing towards home. We just keep rowing towards home. You get what I'm saying, don't you? Keep doing what he's taught us to do and row and let the storms come. We keep rowing towards home and when times get tough, when the wind blows, we row harder, keeping a close watch out for Jesus even though we don't see him. And you get where I'm, what I'm alluding to here, don't you? We keep working, following Christ with our thoughts clearly fixed on our final destination of heaven. Christian, your best life is not now. Your best life is ahead of you. That's what the writer of Hebrews is referring to when he says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Just keep rowing. And if you've been here very long, you've heard me talk about the doctrine of the eminence of God. So write this down. If you've never heard this, write this down. This is important for you to understand. The eminence of God means that God is here. The eminence of God means that God is here. Now, please don't get this confused with pantheism or deism. Those are false 
evil doctrines of how God relates to creationism or creation. Pantheists have this false doctrine that says the created things of the world, this pulpit, your chair, the floor, the building, are part of him. And that's just wrong because that would make creation equal with God. Are you with me? That's just wrong. The Bible proves that wrong. Deists, on the other hand, teach that God is separate from creation, but that he doesn't play any active role in it. That's also wrong. Now, when we talk about the imminence of God, we mean that he is both present and yet distinct from creation at the same time. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. King David writes it like this about this doctrine. Psalm 139, verse 7. King David writes, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So why is this doctrine so key to understand? God is not far from anyone, ever, anywhere. God is not far from anyone, ever, anywhere. He's right here. He's right here. You go, but I don't feel it. They didn't feel it in the storm either. As the Apostle Paul is addressing the people of Athens who have every kind of possible God that they're trying to worship, Paul says this in Acts 17, verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face, all on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. Jesus still has his eye on us. He's not far from us. Jesus always sees what we are facing. He not only sees the storm, he sees the cancer, he sees the job loss, he sees that loved one you lost. He knows not only what we are facing now, but he knows the next storm and the next storm and the next storm. He tells us in Matthew 10 verse 29 that not a tiny little sparrow falls to the ground without his knowledge. And that the very hairs of our head are not just the total counted, but each are numbered. The insinuation is that each hair is known. Each hair is known. Now remember Matthew 28 verse 20 when he promised his followers that he will be with them until the very end of the age. Do you remember that? Write this down. 
Jesus helps them in the storm. He helps them in the storm. And you can write under that, Jesus helps me in the storm. It's not just that Jesus watches his followers go through the storm. He is an active help in the storm. Or you could say it like that. He lets us struggle because progress in spiritual maturity is the result of the struggle. Now here's a misunderstanding for most Christians. And the understanding is that Sometimes Jesus will help us, but not all the time. But the truth is this. Jesus helps us at all times. It's not that he sometimes intervenes. He's always with us. He always helps us. Now it's true, we don't always see him. We don't always notice him helping us. And sometimes you go... Jesus, that didn't feel like much help to me. And it seems like we notice him more when life becomes too burdensome for us and we see him act. We call those miracles sometimes. And yet it's all the same time, at the same time that Jesus is operating in our life and watching and helping people. But while we're in the midst of life struggles, it's often hard to see Jesus working. That's because we forget to listen for his voice in our everyday lives. You get what I'm saying? The voice of the spirit of God that lives within us to see him out while we are in the midst of the storm we face. 20th century pastor Donald Gray Barnhouse told a great story I read. Let me see if I can. He talked about, I'll tell you. Uh, the story is, it's a guy who owned an ice house. Now, for you guys that have no idea what an ice house is, the days before ice makers in your house or even refrigerators, ice houses uh, were places that you had these big blocks of ice they would deliver. you put it in the back of the ice box. And so ice houses were cold places and there was this thick layer of sawdust on the floor to soak up any water that melted and that the Big chunks of ice wouldn't stick to the floor. You got the picture? The story goes like this. The guy that owns the ice house lost his gold pocket watch in the ice house. The man looked frantically all through the sawdust on the floor. It's dark in there, but he couldn't find it. So the men offered, the man offered a reward to anyone who would find this watch for him. All the employees looked, nothing. They used rakes through it, nothing. They even opened it up to all the community to look through the sawdust. So the people looked and looked, searched for the watch with their hands, with rakes. No one could find it for hours. Finally, after the searchers had all given up on finding the watch, a little boy goes into the ice house. And after just a few minutes, he comes back out holding the the watch. The man was astonished. He's astounded and so happy with the little boy had found this watch. So he asked in amazement, how did you find the watch? All these people had been looking for it. And the little boy replied, it was really quite simple. I went in and laid down into the sawdust and closed my eyes. And I listened carefully for the sound of ticking. 
Dr. Barnhouse then concludes the story. Some of you have lost more than a watch. If you will be very still and listen quietly, the Lord will speak to you and show you just where you lost the power and the victory you were sorely missing. I love that story. Okay, here's the review for just a moment. Here's what we know. Jesus was watching them go through the storm. Number two, Jesus helps them in the storm. Number three, here it is. Jesus brings them home. Jesus brings them home. Now what we mean is not only is Jesus able to help them, but that Jesus has the ability to bring them home. When John tells us that the disciples were willing to take him into the boat, and then immediately the boat was boom, it reached the shore several miles away where they were heading, I'm going to say something now that I hope that will encourage you. Before I tell you, I want you to know it has two meanings. Listen carefully. Jesus is able to get you to the place to which he has called you to go. Jesus is able to get you to the place to which he has called you to go. Are you hearing me? He's able to do that. You were designed for a purpose in life. A purpose given to you by God himself. You were designed. As you travel up that discipleship pathway we've talked so much about, God uses the storms you experience and the suffering to refine you, to mold you into whatever he's called you to be. A missionary to another land, a pastor, a banker, a plumber, a mom, president of the United States. In every role of life, like the ones I just mentioned, you will face the storms of life. And in every role of life, Christians are designed to live our lives in such a way to bring glory to God. That is especially true as others watch us go through the storm. They see us rowing hard. Jesus promises that that life will be full of suffering and at times crushing grief. Sometimes he lets us struggle so that we go through, we grow through what we go through. But Jesus is able to get you where you're going. He will see you safely through this life if you lean on him. But that brings up the second thing. It's not just this life and the storms you will face. Jesus will see you safely to heaven's shore. He makes a promise to be with us to the very end. I don't know what you're facing. I know what many of you are facing, but I don't know everybody. Some of you might be on a mountaintop right now like, life's hunky-dory, everything's good, it's sunny, not even a puff of wind. If that's you, enjoy your mountaintop, but don't get too comfortable. Remember the valleys, don't you? 
Some of you are in the valley of life right now. Some of you are going through the dark, stormy night of the soul. And you don't know how you're going to make it through. If the storm or in the valley and you climb the mountain to the top once again, you will know that Jesus walked with you and had his eye on you the whole time. What's interesting is we love it. When we're on the mountaintop, we love it. When it's smooth sailing, but it's those storms in life, it's those hard times that God uses to shape and to mold us into the person he's designed us to be. Like the artist that heats up the precious metal. Purer and purer. Jesus is using the hard stuff of this life to make us like him. To make us, listen to me, holy. But what do you do in the storm when he still hasn't come? What do you do at life's end, or even worse, someone you love is dying Maybe your child or your wife or your husband and you don't see the kind of help that you were expecting. Like, where are you, Jesus? Well, let me introduce you to a couple of scriptures that have helped me tremendously over the years. Write these down. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Straight your path. That's some solid wisdom right there. Grab it. Use it. Memorize that. But let me introduce you to a couple more passages that will help you remember who you are in the storm and how God is in control. James 1, verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet Trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then one of my all-time favorites. I think this is my favorite verse. Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It's because we know that God works all things. How many things? All things. Together for our good. That we, can't, we count it all joy when we face the trials, the storms of life. One of the best passages for going through the storms comes right out of the book of Job. A book about suffering. Job lost everything, but his life and his wife, and he had lost his health, his fortune, his children. Although Job didn't understand, and he asked God, why all this bad stuff is happening? And God was silent. In the middle of Job's storm of life, Job declares this about his trust in God. He says in Job 13, verse 15, memorize this. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Brothers and sisters, this has got to be our prayer. Because when we say that God is sovereign, what we mean is that there is nothing that can force God to do anything. 
He is sovereign, nothing else. And if God is working out all the things for our good and his glory according to his plans for our life, it means that although Satan may be doing the attacking, it's not something that God is somehow surprised by and doesn't have control over like he's going, oh, I didn't know, (laughs) I didn't know that would happen. God never looks at what we are going through and says, oh, I'm so sorry. I did not see that one coming. One day, Our lives will end. And God will allow our death. And our death fits into his plans. I'm convinced that we cannot live one moment longer than God says. And we cannot die one moment sooner than God allows. He's in control. So what that means is that through the suffering, through the storm, we can relax. In the knowledge that God is in control. Knowing that not only is he sovereign. But that he is working his plan. According to his good and perfect purpose. According to his own time frame. We call that providence. His providence. Which means his plans for our lives. And to know that Jesus is watching and praying over us right now. From heaven, and that He has come to help us and has the ability to help us to get us where we're going to heaven. One more tiny little thing, and then we'll close in prayer. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus on that last day of your life, Jesus will meet you there. He will step into your life and immediately take you to your final destination. That's the picture of him stepping into that boat. It doesn't say he calmed the wind that time because he took them home. It's just a picture of our lives at the end. Do you see it? Let's pray. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Those that are going through the storm right now. God, I pray that you let it have its full effect and that my brothers and sisters would rest in you. God, I pray that as you see them, as you help them, would you bring your comfort of that knowledge that you are in control and that nothing can come to us that hasn't passed through your hand first. Brothers and sisters, as you are praying, is there worry that you need to give over to God right now? Is there anger that you need to give over to God, that you were expecting Jesus and he still hasn't come? You need to keep rowing, trust in him. But do you need to give that over? And say, God, I trust you. God, I trust you. Do that right now. Well, we've come to our time of communion that we try to have once a month. If you would, take out the little package of the elements and carefully open them up. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you are welcome to take this, even if you're not a member.
It's really designed for members of the church. But if you are a believer and you're here, you can take this. If you're not a believer, let me just warn you, don't take it. It's not healthy for you. It's not for kids who have not been baptized yet. As you get this together, what we do here is to remember, to relive for just a moment that in our greatest storm that we didn't even know that we had, our battle against sin, Jesus said, I will give my body and my blood in place of their body and their blood. You see, every sin ever committed in the history of time will be paid for either in hell for eternity by you or by Jesus on the cross of Calvary. So for Christians, not because we're good enough, but that he chose to love us, that he called us to life. On the night before he was crucified, just before he was betrayed, hours before he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is the body of Christ. Take and eat. Then he took the cup, the last cup of the Passover, cup of suffering. Jesus said, this is my body spilled for you. Instead of your blood, it's my blood. He says, as often as you drink this, you remember me and celebrate my death until my return. This is the body of Christ. Take and drink. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for calling us to life in your son. Thank you for his death on the cross to pay for our sins. Thank you for making us your children. Adopting us, giving us peace with you. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.